News about Tompkins Square Park in Manhattan's East Village this week focused on the opening of a swanky new dog run there. But 20 years ago, headlines about the park weren't as light. On August 6, 1988, a riot broke out at the park between police and a crowd protesting a 1 a.m. curfew. The New York Times said the bloody street skirmishes that took place that night turned the East Village into something like a war zone. By the time dawn broke, dozens of people were hurt, including reporters and police officers. Good morning. I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. On this morning's show, we'll explore the infamous 88 riot in Tompkins Square Park and its aftermath. Glad you're with us. We welcome to Cityscape this morning Philip Van Aver. Philip was a member of the local community board during the time of the riot. That's Community Board 3. Philip, good morning. Uh, Good morning. It's great to be here. I always love to talk about uh, Tompkins Square Park. Also with us this morning in the studio is Q Sakamaki. Q is a photographer from Japan. He moved to the U.S. in the mid-1980s and quickly settled down in New York's East Village. Q, good morning. Good morning. Bill Weinberg is a longtime East Village resident. He covered the Tompkins Square Park struggle for the Lower Manhattan Weekly downtown. Bill, good morning. Hi. On the phone with us this morning is Attorney Norman Siegel. He was the head of the New York Civil Liberties Union at the time of the 1988 riot. Good morning, Norman. Good morning. And New York Times reporter Kirk Johnson also joins us. Kirk wrote about life in the East Village in the days after the August 6th riot. Good morning, Kirk. Good morning. Philip, let's start with you. What was the climate like in Manhattan's East Village in the late 1980s? Well, for one thing, because of the uh, 1987 economic downturn, there was a lot of unemployment and there was a lot of empty storefronts adjacent to the park. And um, many of the people who were having struggling with to keep their business open blamed conditions in the park, whether fairly or unfairly. But I think it's always helpful in describing historic events to talk about the economics at the time. And the park had been a focus of uh, problems for all the years I've lived on, on East 6th Street, which goes back to 1969. Bill, let me throw this question at you as well. What's your take on the neighborhood at this time? The take on the neighborhood at this time? No, at this time in oh, the late 1980s. 20 years ago. Yes. 20 years ago. Well, it was a very different scene from what it is today. There was sort of an apocalyptic air about it. Um, you know, the um, fiscal crisis of the 1970s, which, um, you know, along with the Cross Bronx Expressway, had destroyed a lot of the borough that we're in at the moment. Um, and, you know, the whole uh, wave of landlord arson and so on. That whole process was sort of the, the flames of, um, of that kind of um, uh, destruction were flickering on the Lower East Side. And particularly in the blocks um, around the park and particularly to the east of the park, it was, uh, it was a pretty grim scene. And uh, there was a lot of um, a lot of burnt out buildings, a lot of drugs, a lot of violence. The atmosphere of um, uh, sort of um, decay was um, accentuated by uh, the AIDS crisis, which was happening at the time, and the homeless crisis. The homeless were everywhere. But I understand there was also a concern about gentrification and being pushed out of your neighborhood. Absolutely. Of course. That was beginning to happen at the, exactly at that time. After this period of decay, and it looked like a lot, the city was just been had written the community off and allowed it to decay under the policies of planned shrinkage and so on of the of the seventies. Well, then by the mid eighties, they were starting to eye it as a bedroom community for Wall Street. What happened around Tompkins Square? It was bigger than just Tompkins Square. It also included the squatter movement and so on. But um, 
focused around Tompkins Square between the years 1988 and 1991 was the last gasp of real hardcore resistance to that whole process. Kirk, what do you remember of how the Times covered the neighborhood in the late 1980s? What I most vividly remember is that the sort of dividing line between the, the old politics of, of that part of the city and these, these sort of economic forces that the other guests have been speaking about. There were people I remember running into down there who were very much uh, holdovers of the earlier era in the 60s and had been drawn to that part of of Manhattan uh, in a sort of uh, for its political consciousness and and the sort of uh, protest spirit that uh, took root down there and then on top of that you had this dislocation that was partly the economic downturn the homelessness drugs that was kind of layered on top of that and i remember running into people who saw what had happened as a as a kind of incoherent expression of of rage and not a and they were there was a kind of a dividing line of of feeling that what had happened in the park was just sort of frustration without a political goal that had been uh, a big force down there and and so it struck me and in, in thinking about it now again 20 years later as as uh, in some ways a I don't know if you'd call it a last gasp of, of the old political consciousness down there as as these sort of other forces took root, but uh, it was definitely a, a kind of, seemed like to me, a threshold moment for that neighborhood, either whether it was changing into something else, uh, maybe toward moving toward a, a sort of yuppie playground, uh, uh, but also losing some of the... the sense that it defined it in the past. Q, you were a total outsider to New York when you arrived here from Japan. You settled in the East Village in 1986, so mm-hmm. yes. you were there a couple of years before the riot. Mm-hmm. That's right. How did you find the neighborhood? Oh, for me, it looked like uh, uh, very interesting because uh, it's a New York, but it's not, not typical New York. It's a feel like a third world country, but uh, it's so attractive, so much you know going on, especially subculture, nightclub scene, also very artistic, many art galleries. But on the other hand, you know, uh, there are so many um, bad things, like a, a gangster just two blocks down from my apartment uh, every weekend, almost shooting, shooting, real shooting. Also, I encounter uh, some bodies in the street. Also, many homeless, you know, um, especially around 87, coach administration at that time, they started to close for nighttime, except uh, Central Park and Tompkins Square Park. That's why, you know, people started together inside of Tompkins Park and under the park area. What I've read about the riot basically focuses on that, the fact that the police were cracking down on this park. They were going to crack down on folks staying in the park overnight, and they were going to enforce a 1 a.m. curfew. Bill, you're shaking your head. That's correct. Yeah, a 1 a.m. curfew. Yeah, which, um, ironically, they were forced to uh, back off from in the aftermath of the riot and the outcry over the um, rampant police violence that night. And uh, today we've got a midnight curfew. So we've actually got one which is more restrictive and ambitious than the one that they attempted to enforce in 1988. Philip, let me ask you, what was the community board thinking at this time? What were your concerns about the park and and what was taking place there? A group called the Avenue A Block Association proposed a curfew, a closing of the park. 
what, what, what um, Bill Weinberg had alluded to. And, but this was new business uh, at the committee. It wasn't like an agenda item, so there was no vote taken on this. But at the June meeting, by that time, there was a proposal to have an 11 o'clock noise curfew. That was the major issue with the Avenue A Block Association. And this was, was passed by the board that evening. This is only important because there's still been so much confusion about what happened. However, there was a meeting, which maybe we'll ta- have a chance to talk about in more detail, that was occurred on August 2nd, the day after Councilmember Friedlander left New York for her vacation in Florida. Actually, I think we have to discuss that because what took place during that meeting, what was decided during that meeting. There were representatives of various political organizations and individuals, the Ninth Precinct Council Chair, and, and a lot of brass. It was referred to as the secret meeting because it wasn't publicized. The, the, the vice chair of the community board was not, was not informed of it, and that was the meeting where they decided to have the closure of the park, on, and it began on the Friday uh, that that would have been uh, uh, the, the 5th of, of August, and that, that was really what, what led to the confrontation and which led to the events. Bill, take us to August 6th, 1988, at Tompkins Square Park. Were you there? Uh, yeah, I was. So what took place? Both sides knew that there was going to be a riot. That was the sense that I got. Um, there was a, uh, a sense, I'm not even quite sure how people knew that this was going to be the first night that the, the police were going to attempt to enforce the curfew. And um, a certain cadre of local squatters and anarchists um, established themselves in the park uh, with the intention of not being moved. And there was sort of a, um, a countdown. The, the police had, had also, over the past week, had established a very, very large presence around the park, and not just the Ninth Precinct, but also uh, riot police from uh, Manhattan South. Um, and they had established a... Um, they were doing, like, military formation drills in the park during the day and on into the evening, and they had established a sort of a command post up at the corner. This would have been the northwest corner of the of the park at um, at 10th street and avenue a and uh, so both sides were kind of girding for battle and uh, precisely at one o'clock um the egg hit the fan so to speak and um a confrontation broke out in the middle of avenue a and the um and the police just responded with indiscriminate violence not only against the protesters, but against everybody, against pedestrians, against people just happened to be out on the street. Uh, Very quickly, most of the businesses along the street were shuttered, and uh, there were battles running up and down Avenue A all the way from 14th Street to Houston Street until dawn. And the police brought out a helicopter, and the skirmishes went on all night. You were working as a reporter during all of this. Yeah. Did you get struck? Uh, no, I stayed on the on the outskirts and observed, which is something which I'm very, very adept at doing. <laughs> what about the homeless folks living in the park at the time? You're talking about the squatters, right. you're talking about the anarchists. What right. about the homeless? Right, that's a very important question, actually, because frequently they're left out of the equation. Uh, but they were sort of what it was all about, because they had established a, um, a an, an encampment, which they um, uh, called Dinkinsville, sort of like a play on the Hoovervilles of the 1930s. 
because, of course, Dinkins had come to office, you know, making um, addressing the homeless crisis a, uh, a cornerstone of his campaign. And uh, the homeless felt that he was completely betrayed. They were completely betrayed by him. And uh, they established this uh, encampment in the park. And, of course, if there was going to be a curfew, they were going to have to leave the park. First, first of all, Dinkins wasn't the mayor in 88. That's true. That was Koch. It, became, it was so called Dinkins later. Sure we get That's it right. right. Correct, correct. Thank you for the correction. Uh, but they, so it later became after the riot right. when the curfew was rescinded. Um, the encampment was established more formally in the park and, um, and became known as Dinkinsville. But at that point, that's true. Koch was still the mayor. Kirk, was this a big story in the New York Times newsroom? Were people going crazy trying to cover this thing that you remember? It was a huge story. And I think uh, one of the things that uh, we quickly focused on was the, the police, because there had been so many reports of uh, police actions that seemed out of control or uncoordinated or uh, just kind of uh, chaotic themselves. And there was a, also a police investigation internally at that time. But it was also it was a time when the police force was rebuilding, and uh, it uh, was one of the youngest and probably most poorly trained forces that the city had had in many years. And that seems to have been a factor that you had a lot of young inexperienced cops who had been hired fairly recently as the city began to recover from the the fiscal crisis era and that i think seems to have been part of what was happening in the excessive response when all was said and done there were about 100 allegations of police brutality let me bring in now there are actually 120 120 this is attorney norman siegel you were head of the new york civil liberties union at the time that is correct but one other thing from 78 to 85 I was the director of the MFY Legal Services, which had its main office on the Lower East Side, East Second between B and C, and then later on we moved to Avenue A and East Third. So I was sensitive to a lot of the issues that the other speakers have mentioned, and then I got the call that Sunday afternoon. And how did you respond to that call? Well, uh, I was shocked to hear what people were saying. Uh, we decided to have a meeting that Monday evening at St. Bridget's, uh, which was adjacent to the park. And that Monday night when I went there, there were probably about 600-plus people, and it was a very diverse, eclectic group of uh, politically sophisticated, vibrant, concerned people with an overriding spirit of outrage, injustice, and challenge to authority. And it crystallized in a movement regarding a lot of the issues that all the speakers have talked about. And it then, from then on, crystallized around police misconduct, accountability, uh, the mayor's office, who was Koch, uh, the NYPD, which was Ben Ward, and the Civilian Complaint Review Board, which was really a police-controlled uh, agency. When I started to see the videotapes and the uh, stills, uh, I was amazed at what I saw because it confirmed the random beatings of uh, people, 
how police officers covered up their badges to accept identity, and many of the officers engaged in aggressive and undisciplined behavior, and that in general the police were excessively violent and out of control. Many observers during the period referred to it as a police riot, and then came the question, which is interesting, still present today in the city, how does something like this happen, and are there any institutions or agencies that can investigate these kinds of instances and hold people accountable? The police department, in its initial reports, blamed the protesters, correct? They threw the bottles. They were attacking us. There were a few people on the back of Avenue A, probably around 6th Street, maybe even 5th, that uh, the argument was that they threw some bottles at the police officers, and that provoked uh, the beginning of what that went on for hours. I'm not in any way uh, going to do anything but condemn anyone who throws bottles at police officers. But the question then became, given that, uh, It never should have turned into what it turned into. Find out the half a dozen people that did that, uh, arrest them, prosecute them with due process of law. But as I think Bill said before, you had innocent people. You know, people went out to get the newspaper. People went out to get a container of milk who were on the sidewalk who had nothing to do with this, who got swept up, who got beaten up. And also what always bothered me, when you saw the video, some of the police officers had black masking tape over their name or their badge number, meaning that this was all in their minds planned and that they were doing it so that they would not be identified and not be disciplined. I think that, you know, as a result of this, There was a movement because we got very little accountability, meaning that officers who did illegal activity were not disciplined or prosecuted. None of them, Norman? There were some. I didn't have enough time this morning to go through my files to find out how many in particular. But if I had to guess now, out of the 120 complaints, maybe you're talking a dozen to maybe 20 people where there was some form of discipline. The videotapes that I poured over hours and hours ago was so stark, was so clear, and not to have a large percentage of those officers disciplined was a failure in achieving any kind of justice. And it fueled the cynicism, the criticism of the system, of the police department, and in some ways it still continues today. We saw the other day a video of critical mass bike riders with a police officer knocking someone off his bike. The complaint says X, Y, and Z. The video says A, B, C. And so you still, interesting enough, 20 years later, some of the issues surrounding what happened in Tompkins Square Park that night are still with us today. Bill, you were shaking your head. Was the community outraged over this? Oh, yeah, the community was totally outraged over it. I was trying to remember the um, 
There were felony charges which were brought, I believe, perhaps Norman remembers better than I do, against um, some police. They were all acquitted, though. Is that your recollection? I think there were a few, and you're right. I think there were acquittals as well. But I, I, I have to... Since it's not until August 6th, the 20th anniversary, right. I don't have all the facts right. in my mind again. Certainly there weren't any convictions. No, no, no police were convicted around it. And yes, the, not, not only the community was outraged, but the entire city was outraged, which is why the city immediately had to back off on the curfew. And um, for those uh, what, three years between 1988, August of 1988 and uh, May of 1991, there was no curfew in the park, and um, and the park was, in fact, it became the only park in the city just about without a curfew because the policy of instituting a curfew, which would have been a citywide policy, was instated everywhere except Tompkins Square. So there was a real sense that we were winning, and the Tompkins Square was um, if uh, I can liberating just territory. One thing. One thing that I recognized during that period or shortly after August the 6th slash August 7th this community, which has never been monolithic, which has enormous diversity and difference of opinions from culture to politics, during those weeks thereafter, there was incredible unity in that community. And it brought together a very diverse group of people who perhaps never before and since have been united on the issues. And that from my perspective, in a in a unfortunate manner, dissipated as time moved on. My question, though, was that unity against police brutality or against gentrification, which was the initial battle? I think it was unity against what happened that night, and it brought some opportunity to talk about the other issues, including gentrification. But my recollection is that there was never any unity on issues other than what happened that night and how everyone was outraged that never should have happened and how do we get accountability. Q, you want to add something to that? Oh, yes. Uh, I said, you know, New York was, I felt New York was third world country. One of the biggest reasons is the police brutality. In Japan, I never seen like such kind of you know, uh, violence by police. Of course, not every cops is bad. Uh, most of co- cops is good. But some of young for or some other, you know, officers, very short temper, they beat up for protesters without you know, no reason or without reason. So I, you know, and then I tried to take pictures for them uh, and also I was beat up and I saw not once, many, many, so many, many times for uh, during for so-called Tompkins movement. That's one of the reasons I would like to more deeply involved for document that situation. The police commissioner during that time, Ben Ward, he admitted some responsibility, not personally, but the NYPD took some of the heat for this. There were reports that blamed the organization of the local precinct. Right, Norman? Initially, the police department's response was to disbelieve the reports of police brutality. In the first press conference, I think it was on August the 8th, uh, both the mayor and the police commissioner uh, were saying that this is something that police have to do and that, you know, it's not necessarily that they did wrong. They were blaming the community. Later on, maybe two or three days later, the mayor, to his credit, began to have second thoughts. And um, I think that once the mayor and the police commissioner saw the videotape and the film, uh, they could not continue to say 
that the police were okay. And they had to start saying what they saw was disturbing and that they would get to the truth. There'd be no cover-up. But in the long run, uh, we never got accountability. Kirk, didn't the Times run an editorial commending the police commissioner for his report that pointed out some faults with the NYPD's response? I do remember something like that. The other thing that uh, I remember in the community, though, was, uh, especially in the weeks afterward, uh, sense that, uh, I don't know if you call it regret, but the feeling that so much of the story had come to focus on the police and their actions that night that the neighborhood's underlying problems and the stresses and decay and the things that had in many ways fomented the event from the community level were getting forgotten that 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 been so there was so much focus on whether the police had overreacted and how they'd been organized and what they'd done that the discussion had shifted entirely to the police and the neighborhood's problems were still being unaddressed and there was there was a lot of frustration Eventually, I felt uh, about that. But I think that was because on TV, over and over again, the video was being played to the rest of the city, and people had never seen what they saw on their TV screens. I agree towards the end of the month, I think it was August 23rd, the police department held a press conference, and they said that, what they saw and the police behavior was appalling, and they had to do better training. They had to deal with the citizen identification of police officers. But as time went on uh, and the focus was not as intense, uh, that issue began to evaporate. That's attorney Norman Siegel. He was the head of the New York Civil Liberties Union at the time of the Tompkins Square Park riot. We also heard from New York Times reporter Kirk Johnson, Philip Van Aver, a former member of Manhattan's Community Board 3, Bill Weinberg, a longtime East Village resident who covered the riot for the Lower Manhattan Weekly downtown, and photographer Q Sakamaki. He, along with Weinberg, have a new book out called Tompkins Square Park. It's published by Powerhouse Books. The Honorable Ed Koch was in his third term as New York City mayor when violence erupted in Tompkins Square Park in 1988. I spoke with him about the riot. Mayor Koch, welcome to Cityscape. Yes, sir. Happy to be with you. Is it true that you didn't even hear about the riot at Tompkins Square Park until the next day? Yes, that's true. It happened on a Saturday night, and I was in the Hamptons, and I was not called. And I saw it on television Sunday morning, and I called the police department to find out what happened. How shocked were you? Well, obviously, I was uh, shocked for two reasons. One, I should have been called. That's number one. Uh, had it not been a riot and been something else that was grave in importance. Uh, and secondly, uh, it was summer, and uh, the idea of a riot during the summer is always dangerous because it can spread. In your opinion, who caused the riot, the police or the protesters? Both. I think the uh, people uh, who were uh, in uh, the riot in violation of uh, the curfew that uh, existed where they couldn't stay in the park. Many of them called themselves anarchists, and they were looking to have a, a riot uh, and a battle with the cops. They were squatters in many of the buildings uh, adjacent to, to Tompkins Square. But the cops uh, were not uh, professional in the way they handle it, and uh, 
my recollection, it's a long time ago, but uh, is that uh, a major reason uh, was uh, that there was no plan of what to do when a situation like this arose. And instead of having uh, cops come from all over the city, which is done when there is such a thing as a riot, directly to the park, they should have been uh, required to come elsewhere where they could have been put under control of uh, officers. And so there's no question uh, but that uh, police, in many cases, not all, obviously, but in many cases, uh, acted uh, irresponsibly and uh, gave the rioters what they wanted, which was a riot, a police riot in addition. There are people today who still say that the police weren't held accountable for this. That Well, I don't think that's true. I think that uh, they were held accountable, but you'll have to check that with the police commissioner. I don't have a list of uh, what the punishments, if any, were. What is the one thing you think, Mayor, that the city learned from this riot? Well, I think that what uh, they uh, learned at the time was that you have to be careful to, when you call cops from all over the city to assist a local precinct, that they not be called directly to the site of the incident or riot in this uh, case, but brought elsewhere so that they can be placed under control of officers as soon as they come near the site. Mayor Koch, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. <laughs> and that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Bodarki. My thanks to producer Rashida Winfield. We leave you today with Lou Reed singing Hold On. The song commemorates the Tompkins Square Park riot. It appeared on Reed's album, New York, less than a year after the violence. There's blacks with knives and whites with clubs fighting at Howard Beach. There's no such thing as human rights when you walk the New York streets. A cop was shot in the head by a 10-year-old kid named Boot in Central Park last week. Fathers and daughters lined up by the coffins by the statue of bigotry. Hey, you better hold on. Something happening here. You better hold, hold on. Well, I'll meet you at Tompkins Square. The dope sent a message to the cops last week and they shot him in the car where he sat.